Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Gould, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Camila Russo. She is the founder and editor of The Defiant, as well as the host of The Defiant Podcast, author of The Infinite Machine, and previously was a Bloomberg News reporter covering markets in New York, Madrid, and Buenos Aires. Camila, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thanks so much, Diana. Really happy to be here. So to kick us off, I'm just curious, how did you originally get interested in crypto? Yeah, so first time I, I heard or wrote about crypto was in 2013 in Argentina. I was working there with Bloomberg News at the time and covering Argentine markets. So a big part of coverage was the inflation story, currency controls, and just, you know, how badly managed the, the like, country's financial system was. And so um, I heard from a colleague that there was this kind of like internet money that was becoming more popular in Argentina for people to protect against inflation. So I thought that was interesting and um, pitched this story to my editors at Bloomberg at the time. And like half of them hadn't heard about Bitcoin. The other half thought it was a scam and that we sh- like shouldn't be writing about it. But um, yeah, I, I ended up writing this story and, and just thought, you know, it was like really fascinating to have this independent like money that didn't uh, rely on central banks and like couldn't be messed around with. Like in Argentina, everything was. So I was like always interested in crypto after that. Got it. And so just to give people a little bit of context, take us back timeline wise around what year was this, all of this happening? Timeline wise, do you mean like for, for crypto or for like myself or? <laughs> yeah, for yourself, like when you first got into this. I guess like a, a bit of background. I'm originally from Chile, from Santiago. Uh, I started my career in journalism at a newspaper in Chile, but then after a year there, I got kind of bored of being in a small country and wanted to work at a big media company in the US. So I applied for a master's in different journalism schools and got accepted into Northwestern University, um, which has a really good journalism school. So um, from there, I got interested in financial journalism for the first time, which I never thought I would. Um, like I got into like journalism because I like writing and kind of history and telling stories, but not because I like numbers. But then I found at, at Medill that like covering markets and like financial journalism gives you like a, a more concrete way of and like a more objective way of telling a story. So I thought that was really interesting. And so I applied for an internship at Bloomberg News and got it in New York and then was hired at Bloomberg then. This was like 2010, I think was the internship. So I started there at Bloomberg News in New York in the Emerging Markets team and then was sent to Buenos Aires like, yeah, 2012, I think. And so, yeah, I was there in Argentina for like the next four and a half years. Then I asked to go to Madrid 
uh, to cover European stocks. But that was like, that was really boring after covering like volatile, crazy Argentine markets. So uh, yeah, I was a little bit tired of, of doing that. And so I had the chance to go back to New York in 2017 for to join a new uh, team that Bloomberg uh, had created, uh, the Markets Live team, which was a small uh, group of like longtime reporters and asset managers writing about uh, what was going on in micro markets kind of real time, like blogging about it. So I joined that team and being 2017, obviously like everything was like everyone wanted to know about Bitcoin and crypto. So I took the chance of, took the opportunity to like write about Bitcoin again after kind of that one time in 2013 and just like started blogging about it for Markets Live. But then like whenever Bitcoin was on, in the headline, it, it like immediately went to the most read on, on Bloomberg. So editors wanted more crypto content. And so I started just like covering crypto on a day-to-day -day basis and it became kind of my second job. So yeah, <laughs> and then never left. Got it. Very interesting. I, I always thought I always thought you came from a finance background for some reason, but you actually came from a journalism background. So when you first started learning about crypto, you know, this or writing more about crypto in 2017, how did you go about learning about it? Or what were some of your best resources as you were doing research to write all of these pieces about crypto? I think like same thing as with uh, like traditional finance doing lots of interviews with like first-hand sources. I, I think my first story was on the ICO boom. And I remember kind of not really understanding what these new coins were, like, were they like Bitcoin? What's Ethereum? Like, I had no idea. So I, I just like did a bunch of interviews with uh, a lot of uh, the like different project founders and developers and and they explained this thing to me. And so, you know, at Bloomberg, you're like writing three different stories a day. Uh, so it's like, you need to be constantly talking to people. And, um, found, you know, that was a, a good way to, to just uh, learn what this new system was. And of course, like tons of Googling and, uh, you know, reading blogs and wikis and all of that. For sure. So now if you were to explain crypto and decentralized finance to a beginner in the space, how would you explain that concept to them? So I think like the, the first thing I, I say to people trying to understand uh, blockchain and, and DeFi is that not to be intimidated by like this word, uh, like cryptocurrencies and like blockchain tech, which sounds like really intimidating. And I think it just like immediately goes over uh, people's heads. I think, you know, the, the way to think about it is this, like blockchains are just networks of nodes and nodes are really just computers running a piece of software. And these nodes are spread out globally and they don't have any hierarchy. So each node is same as every other node. And there's not one like entity or centralized party controlling this group of network participants. And then the way that these nodes are incentivized to form part of this network is this asset that, that's being uh, used as a reward to uh, stay in this network and confirm transactions. And this, uh, this reward is cryptocurrency, like that uh, nodes are rewarded with cryptocurrency. 
And so why it's revolutionary is that this new system allowed the uh, allowed people to transfer value for the first time without the need of um, a financial firm or a central bank or a, an intermediary of, of any kind. And that was never possible before. So what that means is that for the first time, uh, individuals can really control their assets and their value and can like be their own bank in a way. And so the very kind of first uh, system of using this kind of distributed ledger network was Bitcoin. And it's kind of the most, like the simplest form of uh, like blockchain tech. Like it allows a transfer of value and storing of, of this value, but it doesn't allow for much else. So uh, building more sophisticated financial applications is really hard on top of this Bitcoin network. But um, there are other networks that allow for more uh, complex software to run on top of them. And the largest one is Ethereum. So what's happening now is that while Bitcoin allowed for peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value, Ethereum allows for a more diverse financial applications being built on top of this network. And this is what uh, decentralized finance is. Got it. So I always like to bring it back to like real life use cases that everybody can relate to today. So you started off by talking about how you had worked at Argentina in the past and sort of got interested in crypto because you saw the issues with the volatility in the Argentina markets. Maybe use that as a real life use case for what the problems are in Argentina with finance right now, and then how decentralized finance can maybe solve some of those problems. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the reason why Argentines were buying uh, Bitcoin since 2013 is uh, because their own currency is being devalued at like 25% to like 50% every year. And you can't buy other currencies like dollars to protect your savings. So that means everyone is getting a salary and they know for a fact that if they hold that salary in the bank, it will be worth less by the end of the year and a lot less like it's not like you know there's some inflation in the US like maybe it's like I don't know one percent or less at, um, annual inflation but uh, for for Argentina and like Venezuela and other countries it's significantly more, uh, more like 25 percent and because everyone is uh, dumping their local currency and going to dollars dollar purchases are banned and it's not like a theoretical thing like I lived it firsthand I was earning my salary in pesos and immediately before the currency controls was exchanging my pesos to dollars as soon as I got them. And then when the currency controls were implemented, that option was just like not there anymore in, in my, like in my bank. So it's like, I don't know, it's, it's like really dramatic to see how governments and banks can like really control what like your assets. So that's why people buy Bitcoin, but Bitcoin obviously is very volatile. Um, and you know, while you can expect that it, it will be a, like a hedge against the devaluation of your currency, it, it's also risky. Like maybe one year Bitcoin can go, go up 10 times, but on other years it can also go down, um, uh, many times, uh, like, you know, 2018, 2019. So this is where something like, DeFi really makes a difference because DeFi allows anyone anywhere in the world to have dollar-based savings accounts. I mean, this is just one of the many use cases, but I think it's 
probably the, the most important use cases for just a, a, a wider audience. And the fact is that before DeFi, this just wasn't possible to be able to have cryptocurrency that's pegged to the US dollar. So that means that it's stable like the US dollar and earning interest. So I think that's kind of a, a key difference because before maybe you would be able to buy like Tether or USDC or other stable coins in a centralized exchange. But with DeFi, you're able to also deposit them in a smart contract. Like you're not depositing these coins in a bank. You're like sending them to a piece of like computer program. And because of how these system works, systems work that um, on the other side, there's people borrowing and, and paying interest. You as a lender are earning that interest, but it's all kind of based on smart contracts and you don't have to trust any, any bank in between taking a cut or handling your, your money. You're always in control of your private keys and still kind of earning interest on a dollar-based asset. So I think that's kind of like one of the most powerful use cases for, for DeFi for kind of like everyday everyday people. Well, I think that's even more important now because aren't they talking about doing a asset tax down there in Argentina where they just take one or 3% oh, of your God, money? Yeah. yeah. So, and then we also had asset taxes being talked about here in the U S for, for a few politicians as well. And like, could you imagine having the currency go down 20% every year? And then on top of that, they come into your bank account and take another 3% at the end of the year, you know, just to, to, because they've been very bad at running the government, I think essentially is maybe that's my opinion, but that's yeah. that's kind of how I read into that. So, well, so I think you've actually been underselling yourself a little bit. So, for those who don't know about Camilla Russo on here, she actually wrote a book on the subject called The Infinite Machine, uh, which we at Unstoppable Domains we actually every employee can get a free copy of this book if they would like to read it, and it went through the history of smart contracts. So it's almost like. Uh, and you can correct me if you're wrong, but you're like, you're writing articles for Bloomberg and then, and then you're like, I want to know more about, I want to know about more about smart contracts. And then eventually you ended up writing a book on the subject. So I'm actually kind of curious, you know, uh, and, and then after you wrote a book, you went on to found what a lot of people would say is probably one of the best places to go for news in the space right now. And with the defiant, which we'll get to in a second, but on the book first, what inspired you to get started to write a book about the first smart contract blockchain? And, you know, how do you, how do you get that started? That's quite a task to be like, oh, I'm going to put a hundred thousand words on paper. Uh, <laughs> it, like take me through that thought process. Cause that sounds like torture to a lot of people out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of was torture. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not really, but it was really hard. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, I, I had always wanted to write a book. Not, I mean, I, I never thought I would do it on something as kind of, complex and like just like technical as uh, a, a blockchain network but you know like I said like I got into journalism because I like writing so just like a book was always kind of one of my goals that I that I wanted to do and I also had kind of my idea of what I wanted this book to be like I I think after reading in Cold Blood by uh, Truman Capote, I was like, oh, wow, like you can have nonfiction read like fiction, like read like a story and have it be as, as compelling as a novel. Um, so that like instantly became my, my goal together with having a book. It would have to be kind of a nonfiction book that read like a novel. And then when 
I started reading Michael Lewis's books, I was like, okay, yes, like this is this is what a, like a nonfiction book is supposed to read like. Uh, so I was like always thinking about what a Michael Lewis worthy topic <laughs> would be to write about, and so. As I was, you know, covering news uh, at Bloomberg, I was always like, this was always in the back of my mind, like, where's my book? And with crypto, it was, it was the first time that I, I felt that, A, like, it's something that's interesting enough to write a book about, and, and B, it's, it's something that kind of where I could make a contribution. But with Argentina, like, it wasn't my place to write um, a book on that, because like i don't know i had been just like covering this like long and complicated history for like just a couple of years while at the same time there were like so many like in like incredible veteran journalists who were argentines themselves and who had you know they they had spent their whole careers covering this so it just like didn't feel like it was like my story to tell but with crypto everyone is new and it just felt like you know like i'm i'm as as uh, capable as anyone else uh, to write a, a book on this. So once I realized that I could write a book about crypto, at the end of 2017, I started thinking about what specifically the book should be about. And I, I realized that nobody had written the story of Ethereum. And this was pretty incredible to me, uh, seeing that, you know, Ethereum is the second biggest blockchain. It had fueled a lot of the craziness of 2017. It was the first uh, smart contracts chain. Like to me, it had already made history. It had like already made an impact in in tech and finance. So even if, because like a lot of people told me, are you sure you want to write about Ethereum? Like what if it fails? Like maybe it won't be kind of relevant. Yeah, Ethereum's the future of finance. Like we needed somebody to write the liar's poker for cryptocurrency, which is essentially what you did. And I think that like you, it's been a huge help for a lot of people because if you're in the space for a long time, everyone comes at you with like a million questions about how, how everything works. And you literally wrote a book on the subject, which I just point people to now. And I'm like, so I would highly advise uh, checking out The Infinite Machine if you haven't already at home. It's a great book to kind of get into the space and get the history. And I'm one of those people who likes the history of the space because that helps me understand it better. Um, so I really do appreciate <laughs> the work that you've put into it. And then, And then after you wrote a book, you went on to found The Defiant, which is on Substack, and it's actually kind of, it's interesting because you, you're you building basically a new direct-to-consumer media platform, right? Like you, you go, you're you you're going direct to consumers, consumers can subscribe to you on Substack and they can uh, they can incentivize you, they can pay you through that way instead of, uh, you know, having to write articles for some other company that then posts them for you. Uh, so I actually like that. What's it like building a new direct-to-consumer media platform at The Defiant? You know, what kind of growth have you guys seen and you know, where are you trying to take the Defiant over the next you know decade? As you guys are basically, you are covering the new finance. Yeah. So okay, what's it like? It was. I mean, it's it's been a like really mind blowing uh, to to start this like essentially media company out of a newsletter. I I didn't really expect it to go <laughs> this way. So I, I left Bloomberg in early 2019 to finish uh, the Infinite Machine. And then realized decentralized finance was booming. And I agree, like, to me, it's 100% the future of finance. And so 
I thought there there needs to be quality journalism in the space, and I thought I I could uh, be the one to to do that. So I started the Defiant newsletter on Substack June 2019, thinking it would be like a a part time thing that I would be like a freelance journalist covering tech and finance, and then. Um, having this kind of newsletter on the side, just, you know, covering the main things that, that happened in DeFi. But it quickly became uh, my full-time job to be running the Defiant because just so much was happening in DeFi. Like it, it was taking longer and longer to put everything in this like daily newsletter and it was super complicated. So it took time to kind of research and talk to the different people and like really understand what was happening. And also, like, I just, I just was fascinated by the space. Like, I, I saw a huge opportunity there. Like, I, I kind of very quickly realized there's, there's more to, there's, there's a lot more potential here. You know, it, it's, it's kind of worth um, my time to, to, to just like build this out. So I decided to focus a hundred percent on, on the Defiant. Um, I mean, I was like, yeah, doing, writing the book and, and running the newsletter. And then when I, I finally finished the book, I decided to uh, focus on the Defiant full time and the Defiant just like kept growing and growing. I kept getting great feedback, like people were really appreciating the, the content. And it was a really nice change from writing at Bloomberg where it's, it's harder to get that sort of like gratitude from, from readers. It's like, you know, you're behind this like huge corporate brand. Like, I guess like people just expect you to like churn out like article after article every day. But with something like a newsletter on DeFi in a space that has like really few content creators, at least at that time, there's more now, but in 2019, there were very few of us. I think it was actually the first DeFi focused newsletter. People were really kind of grateful and appreciative. And so I, I realized it was like product market fit, like people wanted this thing. So yeah, it just kept growing. I, I took on contributors. I, I launched the podcast early uh, last year. I partnered up with Robin Schmidt, who used to be at Harmony, but is now full-time at, at the Defiant to, to create a YouTube channel. And he started producing incredible video content. And then late last year, I, uh, made the Defiant website to kind of host all of this content in, in one place. And I think the Defiant is looking more and more like an actual information company than a newsletter. Uh, there's, there's the newsletter, which is like driving still most of the traffic to all of the different other content. Like it drives people to the podcast, to, to the, to the video content and to the website. But I think I think in the future, the kind of the website will be kind of the main home of the Defiant and hopefully a place that elevates the standards of reporting in the space. This is what I want to bring to Defi, just high quality, unbiased, objective reporting, which is sorely missing. I think right now you either have crypto media, which isn't really financial media, so they don't like go as in depth into Defi as I think is necessary. I mean, they're great places like the blog and, and uh, Coindesk do a great job, Decrypt, but um, they're just like, they're generalists. So they cover everything, not specifically DeFi. And then there's like DeFi newsletters and podcasts, which by and large are led by investors. So you can't really trust them 
to be unbiased and do actual journalism. They're there to like pitch their investments. They're going to be bullish ETH or they're going to be bullish something else. They're not going to be reporting when there's a hack or when something bad happens. If they're like super kind of pro Ethereum DeFi, they're not going to be covering when DeFi is going on in another chain. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's very like, the defense is very needed in this space. One, because it's 100% DeFi focused. And the two, because we're trying to do real kind of quality journalism. Yeah, I think it's a natural response to have all of these new, more research newsletters coming out uh, because people need real information about this space. And then if you go on a lot of media sites, it's just all about who can get the most clicks. And so like, I almost feel like, and you see a lot of these popping up. And again, you know, I think the Defiant is one of the better ones for the, the DeFi space, if not the best. But there's a lot of these that are popping up for crypto. And I think this is actually just kind of part of the creator economy, like people inside of crypto, they want to create. And so, of course, they're going to find ways to make better news for people to learn about it. Uh, but it's a little bit harder to find. You can't just type it into Google. You know, you're not going to be the first result, but I think it'll get there. And then another thing I think is super interesting for you guys, particularly, is there have been huge acquisitions and valuations in the, in, in the space for consumer news and uh, all of these types of apps in the regular, you know, like Robinhood, obviously really huge, Barstool Sports or Barstool, I think they just had a huge investment in them. CoinMarketCap was acquired by Binance for 400 million, et cetera. So like all of these like information providing services for in consumers about crypto are actually getting, you know, a lot of investment interest in the near term. And I think Defiance just sitting you know, at a really good spot to build on the brand, especially since you've invested so much, so deeply in the space. So on that note, what's new for the Defiant in 2021? Uh, give us a quick little summary for that. And then I'm going to actually dive in. I got a bunch of like questions on, on some of the things that I've seen you post recently. Yeah. So, so like I said, for, for the Defiant, the, the goal is to build a, a financial information company focusing on the intersection of tech and finance. So kind of to, to dive into that, financial information means not just content, but also data. So with that, I'm obviously doubling down on high quality DeFi content, but I'm also building a DeFi data platform that will work similar to a Bloomberg terminal. So see it as a uh, dashboard where you can get all the, the data you could ever possibly need to track DeFi and that it's also 100% customizable so that you can create your own charts with any assets, any metrics across any time frame that you want, create different market views to, to track the market. So yeah, that, that's what I'm building now. So the idea is to, to continue being the, to continue being the leader in high quality DeFi content and news, but also in uh, DeFi focused data. And I, I think that's becoming the, the Bloomberg of, of DeFi is kind of what's what's next for the Defiant. So one thing that um, you actually didn't bring up at all is that you actually are a podcast host as well. You have a podcast called The Defiant Podcast. And one thing that I wanted to just bring up real quick, we were talking about this before we started recording, is you interviewed Mark Cuban recently, which is super exciting. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Why did you obviously like Mark Cuban has been, you know, tweeting about this. Like, what was it about Mark Cuban that like you really wanted to talk to him about? And how how was that conversation? So, well, I obviously saw him tweeting about Ave and like buying NFTs and and just like 
he seemed to be like really knowledgeable about just NFTs and, and DeFi, like surprisingly so. So uh, I I wanted to kind of just dig into that and get his impressions on like what, what he thought about the space and like how much he actually knew. So I had uh, emailed with him before uh, for like other stories and I knew that he was like pretty uh, receptive to email. He also uh, read a copy of, of my book that, that I sent to him. So like we had corresponded before. So I just like said, okay, I'll, I'll just try. I'll just try and see if he bites. And he like instantly responded, yeah, like I'm a su subscriber to The Defiant. I'll absolutely go on your podcast. So we recorded like a few days after that email. And we, we talked about kind of what he was seeing in DeFi. And I just like started the conversation by clearing up this this kind of like, I guess like a misconception that there was of him that he was uh, like a Bitcoin or like crypto skeptic because he's made like a lot of comments like criticizing Bitcoin or or like questioning its value. So I wanted to clear that up. And it, it turns out that he is 100% a crypto bull, but he just doesn't see Bitcoin as a means of payment, which I think, you know, is totally valid um, assessment. But what he's kind of really bullish about is actually Ethereum and the ability of having smart contracts and how smart contracts can lead to different financial applications. And then what he's like really crazy about is actually NFTs. You know, he, he obviously, you know, is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He collected baseball cards. So to him, like having these, um, cards that are actually linked to tokens and are digital are and immutable and that there's the potential of earning revenue from future sales like all of this is just like mind-blowing to him and he just is like sure that this will take over kind of the physical collectibles world because it's just so much better I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on NFTs. Obviously, it's, you know, NFT started trending on Twitter. Everybody's talking about NFTs. Do you see this as a, a bubble that's going to burst at some point? Or do you really see NFTs being our future? Like, I'd love to get your personal thoughts on NFTs. I think there's, like, elements of, of a bubble in, in, like, how people are pricing uh, NFTs. Uh, I think... Yeah, maybe some of these tokens are, 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 are being overvalued because they, they are like part of this hype cycle. But that doesn't mean that there's, that there's not kind of real value there. I, I absolutely believe that NFTs are here to stay and they have actual lasting, lasting value. I think that the, the ability to own something unique and to prove that you own it and to have it be traceable to have like the provenance uh, of it uh, be traceable um those are all a huge improvements from physical uh, digital collectibles from kind of uh, arts to baseball cards to you know uh, uh, even songs so that's kind of one one part and then the other side that hasn't really been explored very much, but that's like, I think is coming is, is just the ability of uh, communities and fans to invest in, in their, in their idols and kind of earn from, from that as well. So I, I interviewed with on my podcast too with Blau, the, the DJ and music producer, and he's super excited about this, this idea of like selling 
selling a song to to his uh, to, to his audience, and and then um, that audience kind of earning the royalties from that song via this token. So I think that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Um, like the the fact of having these tokens on networks that are made to carry value that are kind of immutable and, and traceable will open up so many uh, possibilities going forward for these kind of unique like digital assets. That's so funny that you just brought up Blau because we were literally just talking about him because he's dropping his uh, debut album, uh, what's it called? Ultraviolet today, right? His He's tokenizing his debut album and he's got like a Shopify store and stuff like that too. So it's really cool to see how NFTs can help content creators, whether it's musicians or, you know, any any type, writers, any type of content creator in the future. I, I think the possibilities there are endless and I'm personally really excited about that. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Oh, uh, yeah, I was going to switch gears a little bit. And I was actually going to ask about scaling, because I know that this is something that people are bringing up a lot now, especially on Ethereum because of the congestion on the network. And I actually just wanted to get your thoughts, because I know you've done some research on this, on layer two scaling solutions and what you think the timelines will be for impact for people in the blockchain space. I know a lot of people would be interested in that. And then what do you see happening on some of the other chains, You know, the, the, maybe some of the corporate chains, and do you think there's anything newsworthy there? And just, yeah, your general thoughts on scaling for blockchains in general. So I think like the first thing to, to note is that Ethereum is having a scaling problem because of just like the amount of crazy demand that there is to use Ethereum and to use its DeFi applications. So it, it is kind of like a good problem to have, but it like it really sucks because it's making Ethereum unusable and to have to pay like hundreds of dollars uh, in transactions. So I think, and we wrote this in, in a story, the fate of, of Ethereum and the success of Ethereum DeFi really does depend on scaling solutions. And ETH2 is supposed to be the answer to this, but that's many years away. So layer twos are kind of the bridge to get there. So they are, I mean, it's you can't kind of overestimate how important uh, they are to Ethereum right now. So yeah, layer twos are meant to bring some of this congestion on Ethereum off-chain and make using these DeFi dApps and other dApps uh, cheaper and, and faster. There's a bunch of these solutions, uh, optimistic rollups, CK rollups, uh, Plasma, safe channels. Uh, we did a whole kind of state of layer twos in the Defiant. You can uh, go check it out. But the timelines for, for these solutions, they are all live, albeit live uh, since very recently. So they're not kind of mature uh, systems and networks. And that means that they, they don't have many applications that are uh, being built on top of them yet. Um, only a, a, a couple of uh, Ethereum-based applications are actually moving to layer two. The most recent one was DYDX and announced uh, it's going to um, a CK rollups based solution yesterday. So that's encouraging. Synthetics also has part of its uh, operations, like staking of the Synthetics token is on an optimistic rollup. But that's pretty much it for, for like the larger Ethereum dApps. And so this is really kind of concerning because it's so needed. Like people aren't using Ethereum and are going to other places because it's, it's really expensive. And the solution is right there. Like these, these networks are live today. 
So I think what, what's, what's happening is that it's just becoming so pressing. And the fact that users are going to other, other chains is hopefully going to encourage Ethereum applications to uh, move to layer two quicker, but we'll see. Otherwise, I mean, people will just use DeFi in, in other chains. Well, I will, I'll put a plug in here. So Unstoppable is working on our layer two and we're targeting August for our migration. So we'll be, we're moving, right? So we're one of the apps that are moving because we think it's, it's pressing to get over there. The, the issue is the UX is actually much more difficult for users for a lot of reasons that we won't get into, but you know, we need to work through those and I think people will become used to it. And I agree that it is kind of a bridge to what we need to make the next steps. So I'm sure the next question is one that most people are most interested in, which is what do you see happening in DeFi uh, in, in this in this next year? Because you cover it so much. Are there any parts that you think are particularly interesting outside of scaling, or maybe it is scaling, that you think is worth mentioning for listeners that you see really happening in 2021 in full force? So I think kind of the main major pieces that have been miss missing in DeFi have been a uh, decentralized identity. And with that, the ability to do under or uncollateralized loans because right now the the fact that you need capital to transact in DeFi and you need to put up collateral to make to, to borrow or to do almost anything is uh, putting a major barrier for uh, smaller users or people who who don't have um the, the resources so i think it's key to have decentralized identity so people don't need to rely on collateral to, to borrow and um, seeing how quick and uh, exponential innovation has been in this space, it wouldn't surprise me that those uh, problems are solved this year. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to see the most. That's awesome. Well, so for our next segment, Camila, we have what we call explain your tweet, which is where I go through your Twitter and pull out some interesting or cryptic or funny tweets and ha give you a chance to talk about it. Your Twitter is just uh, such a good resource for people that are wanting to learn about DeFi and crypto. A lot of it is tweets from the Defiant. And so pe people listening who want to learn more about this space, definitely go follow Cami. But one, I just want to pull out one tweet <clears throat> real quick. This is sort of a funny one that people have been talking about a lot. So Dogecoin is uh, something that has been trending lately. And you tweeted, this was, let's see, back on February 17th. So about a week ago, you tweeted, dissecting Doge meme economics in today's Defiant News. Every single price spike corresponds to a Twitter trend. Talk more about that and what you were talking about there. Yeah, so yeah, th this was a story from one of my reporters, Dan Cahan. And he, he, we were talking about kind of uh, how funny Doge was and this whole kind of Wall Street bets movement and how much just like the market seemed to be moved by, by memes and like the difference between memes and, and fundamentals and if there was a difference. And so this story was kind of exploring that. Like we looked at Doge fu fundamentals and what kind of actually was going on on a like on chain level, like number of addresses, number of transactions, and everything was pretty stable. Like there was like nothing there to really explain the huge bump in the in Dogecoin this year. So like like because of fundamentals, like Doge shouldn't have done, shouldn't be doing any anything. But then it's really kind of 
Elon Musk tweets and just like Twitter trends, what's driving price. And so Dan kind of charted the, the Doge price chart and, and went to see when, uh, Doge was trending on Twitter and like the peaks corresponded exactly, uh, Twitter trends. So <laughs> that was interesting to see. For sure. Yeah. So basically, if you want your coin to succeed, just get Elon Musk to tweet, tweet about it and then design some sort of funny meme around it. And there you go. That's all you need to do. <laughs> cute, cute animal picture. Yeah. Cute dog pics. That gets everybody. All right. Well, Camilla, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally and also where they can learn more about the Defiant and get your book, all, all of the good things. Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Cami Russo, C-A-U-I-R-U-S-S-O, and go to thedefiant.io. And there you'll, you'll be able to see where to subscribe to the newsletter, where to follow the YouTube channel, and uh, listen to the podcast as well. And then The Infinite Machine is yeah available on, on Amazon uh, to deliver anywhere in the world. So ho hopefully you can read it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Cami, for being here. Thanks, Matt, for co-hosting with me as usual. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something I said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.